So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting to read at verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your members, the bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Some parts of the Bible are really hard to understand and apply. And other parts are so clear and relevant, it's as though the passage had been written this morning and emailed to you. And this is one of those passages this evening. It's not that it makes it an easy passage, but it is a supremely relevant passage As a nation, we've been reeling with a broken understanding of sex. As we have turned our back on God and his word, the impact of the Enlightenment and the sexual revolution and an entirely materialistic outlook on everything has left us well, I say us, has left people with a broken and devastated view of what sex is all about. And the Corinthians were wrestling with exactly the same problems, which is why the text, although there's detail that we need to understand this evening, even on a first read, you probably read it and thought, that could not be more relevant. And you get to the root of the Corinthians problem and their context by asking a question that holds the whole of this passage together. Who owns your body? Who owns your body? Out of that, you can ask another couple of questions. How do you decide what to do with your body? And does it really matter at all? Now, if you just look at the first couple of verses in our text, they would show us how the Corinthians would answer those three questions. Who owns your body? How do you decide what to do with it? And does it matter at all? Verse 12, they had a saying. I have the right to do anything. 
The assumption being that they thought they owned their bodies and that enabled them to do whatever they wanted to do with it. So how did they decide what to do with their bodies? Verse 13, they just did whatever they felt like. When they were hungry, they ate. When they wanted to have sex with somebody, that's what they did. Because sex had just been boiled down to a craving like having a bag of crisps. And for them, none of it ultimately mattered. They thought their bodies were temporary, so nothing that they did with their bodies really mattered. Now, you ask those same three questions of, well, maybe you won't ask your non-Christian friend and colleague tomorrow, but if you were to ask your non-Christian friend tomorrow, who owns your body, they're going to have exactly the same answer as the Corinthians. I do. If you were to ask them, well, how do you decide what you're going to do with your body? Exactly the same answer as the Corinthians. Whatever I feel like. And if you apply that in the world of sex and relationships, you see the impact of that worldview. So in our day, we've got different language for it. Uh, We talk about some friends who are just mates, and then there are friends with benefits. And there's a whole demographic of people who have absolutely no problem with just hooking up with somebody for casual sex. And it means nothing in their way of thinking. Because all you're doing is just meeting an urge. There's nothing more involved. There's no relational commitment. There's no covenantal promise. I wonder if these words sound familiar. To forsake all others and be faithful to him or her for as, as long as you both shall live. None of that is on the radar at all. Because for so many, sex is nothing more than a bodily craving like hunger. Well, (laughs) that's one half of the lies that we're told. You see, on the one hand, sex is nothing. But on the other hand, we are simultaneously told that sex is absolutely everything. And unless you're having sex, you've not found the identity for your person and you've not found the fulfillment of your self-expression. Which means it's saturating everything. Sex is simultaneously both. And here's what your culture, our culture, will never, ever tell you. Trying to hold those opposing extremes of sex being nothing and sex being everything is an impossible, broken worldview that is causing devastation in our world. You think of the children and teenagers and young people who are being bombarded with this message that I'm not really myself unless I've had sex. And not just had sex, but had sex in whatever kind of preferential view of intimacy that means for me. And all of this is charged with this enormous sense of, well, unless you've done that, then you're not really who you're meant to be. But then as soon as you've had that moment of intimacy, the worldview is, but it doesn't mean anything, so just forget about it and move on. And an entire generation of people are being broken by a paradox which is forced upon us that says it's everything and it's nothing all at the same time. 
That's not just the world out there, though. Because that, the deep-seated mentality that's behind that is creeping into the church as well. All too often, Christians can shrink the gospel down to a hell insurance policy. By which I mean, we're genuinely thankful that we can say that we've trusted Jesus for our sins. And we're going to come to church as often as isn't inconvenient. But that's pretty much all that's relevant of the Bible in our lives. Now, for lots of Christians, they wouldn't be able to say that out loud. But functionally, many Christians live as though the Bible is not relevant to what they do with their bodies, to the way they use their time, their money, and all of the things that fill Monday through Saturday. Too many Christians would answer those questions the same way as our world. I own my body, and I do what I want with it based on how I feel, because it doesn't really matter. It's okay, because Jesus has forgiven me. I seem to all of that mess in the culture and in the church that God writes a message of hope and beauty and truth that we need to hear this evening. Paul confronts all of this sexual immorality in Corinth, but as God's word is applied to us today in the church today with God's better story in three big ideas. And the first one is in verse 12. Use your Christian freedom for good. Seems that the Corinthians had this saying, I have the right to do anything. And here in chapter 6, it's about, therefore I can sleep with prostitutes. That's the big problem that Paul is addressing. But it's a mentality, this slogan, it represents a mentality that they use to justify other things as well. So if you jump into chapter 7, um, and no, forgive me, if you jump down to chapter 10 and look in verse 23, you see exactly the same slogan come up again in the context of eating and drinking things that have been offered to demons. So they're using it for that, and they're using it back in chapter 7 to justify whoever they want to sleep with. But Paul's going to show us that's not a godly way of thinking at all. Wherever this slogan came from, and some say maybe it came from Greek philosophy, and some say maybe it's a horrible distortion of Paul's teaching of salvation by grace alone, the whole point of being saved as a Christian by grace, meaning you can't earn it. You can't live a life godly enough. You can't give enough. You can't do enough to become a Christian. You entrust all of your mess to the God who says, I will forgive you because Jesus is the one who has lived the perfect life in your place. Paul says, if you trust that message, it sets you free not then to indulge your sin, but, what does he say? To do things that are beneficial. To do things that are helpful. To do things that are going to be for your good. In fact, we exercise our freedom, Paul's basically saying, by regularly saying no. And he expands on that in the second part of the verse. I will not be mastered by anything. Not only are there some things in your life that you might think you're free to enjoy, if they're not only beneficial 
you should shun them. But also, if they're going to master you, you should shun them. Now, how that will look for every single one of us is going to be different. Because each of us have different struggles in our temperament and in our character. But let's pick something that perhaps is a morally neutral subject that you can all relate to. Maybe it's uh, craft or gaming or sports. None of those are morally wrong. You can do all of them. What Paul's saying, though, is when you think about whether you should be doing them and for how long you should be doing them, it's not just, well, that's not sinful, I can do it. It's, is it going to help me and will I be mastered by it? So let's put some skin on the idea. You're a parent. Your kid is eight, nine years old. Desperate to be playing more sports. The principle Paul is teaching us here is that you are to look down the road and see the possible implications of what you might be doing. So if the implication is, well, if the kid gets really good at this sport, within two or three years, all of the practices and fixtures are on Sundays, then there's a real wisdom call that needs to be made. Maybe you're thinking more about gaming which is not morally wrong in any way, depending on which games you're playing. But if you know any children or young people, you know that very quickly gaming can become incredibly addictive. And what you need to help your child, your friend, know is the implication of what might then master you. I learned recently that in 1999, when I was 17... 50% of teenage boys played a computer game for an average of 34 minutes. Half of boys for half an hour. Today, 97% of teenage lads play computer games for an average of 2 hours and 20 minutes. That's massive, isn't it? And again, it's not to say that gaming is sinful, but it is to say that the things that we are free to choose in the world that God has given us are going to have a journey. And we need to look down the road to see how getting really involved in something and using our freedom might end up mastering us. That's the first thing. Now, I say all of that. The issue in Corinth was not a tricky wisdom call. <laughs> They weren't looking at gaming or sports or craft or anything like that. They were using a mistaken, a distorted view of freedom to justify sleeping with prostitutes, which is just sinful and wrong. And their view of freedom is broken. That's what Paul corrects in verse 12. But they've got another problem in verse 13 because they've got a wrong understanding of the body. If I can put it this way, they have bad body theology. And what Paul gives them is good body theology. Paul seems to quote another one of their sayings. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And the implication, given the whole argument in this section, is all about sexual immorality. The implication is, therefore, body for sex and sex for the body, because God will destroy them both. That's the reason for the quote. That's why it's here. That they've got what is essentially a Greek way of thinking about body and soul. 
body is the lesser thing that is temporary and unimportant, which means the stuff that you do with your body doesn't really matter because your body's going to die and that's going to be the end of that season of your life. So do whatever you want to do while you've got a body because it's going to come to an end. The soul, however, that's going to go on forever in Greek thought. But the soul isn't involved with the things of the body. The soul's not involved with sex. So you can do whatever you want in that zone because your soul isn't involved. Now, to show them just how wrong that whole way of thinking is, Paul explains in verses 13 to 17 how precious our bodies are. It's the second big idea. How precious our bodies are. And he's got three arguments. The first one's in verse 13. Our bodies aren't just for sex. Our bodies are for the Lord. Verses 13 and 14. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Paul reminds all of these Corinthians that God has designed and given a purpose for all things. Your stomach has a purpose. I discovered a few weeks ago that my appendix didn't, but your stomach does. Your stomach takes in all of the nutrients that your body needs to live and grow and be sustained. Your body too, has a purpose. And when Paul's using the word body here, he's meaning the whole you. Not just anatomically distinguishing between the different parts of your body. You, James Midwinter body, you have a purpose. And that means the God of heaven who made me has said, there is a reason for your existence, which as you pursue it will bring you joy and God glory. There is a design purpose for your body. It's not sexual immorality, it's that you get in your body to serve and glorify the God of heaven and earth. That's how important your body is. There's none of this distinction between body and soul, and only the soul matters. The body is for the Lord. Your bodies aren't Irrelevant. They have this massive purpose where you can bring him glory. That's not how the world thinks. So to help us be really sure about what God's telling us, he says in verse 14, I've proven how important the bodies are. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will also raise us which is in one sense an incredibly simple thing to state. You think about the resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't just appear as an angelic being. The disciples, when they're at the lake, when they're in the upper room, they didn't just see a spiritual haze and think, oh, that shadow reminds me of Jesus. He was bodily present with them. And yes, he was different. And so too, when you get to chapter 15, we're going to realize that our spiritual resurrection bodies are going to be different too. Chapter 15, the body that is sown, meaning by dying into the ground, is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Yes, your body's going to change because... Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ's body too has changed. But what is it that puts on the imperishable? It is your body. 
What is it that is going to be eternal and have a spiritual experience that in one sense we can't even begin to get our minds around right now? It is your body that will be transformed but still be your body. And that means your body has an eternal destiny. It changes the way you think about the importance of what you do with your body. That's the first reason your body is precious. It is to serve the Lord. But they're also precious, verse 15, because our bodies are parts, plural, of Christ. We've seen Paul's uh, do you not know argument a number of times, haven't we? It's a gentle way of saying, you should know this, but you've forgotten it. And that's the same logic that he applies again here. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Now, if you're a Christian and you've read the Bible a number of times, you'll know that this body language gets used in different ways. Sometimes Christ is the head of the body and Believers are the body. Sometimes believers are the whole body and we're married to Christ. Sometimes, as here, Jesus is the body, but he's, Paul is picturing us, personally, as a part of the body. That's what the members is referring to. Parts is perhaps a little bit easier to understand. So one of you is like an eye. The other's a toe. The other's an elbow. The other's a etc. And on we go. And, and all of that is explaining how serious it would be to abandon being united to Christ so that you could be united to, well, in the context of Corinth, a prostitute. But the context is bigger than that. It's anybody who isn't your husband or wife. And when you get to verse um, 15, the translation we've got in the NIV is a bit soft, really. We've got, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take, meaning take away, the members parts of Christ. Paul's a lot stronger than that. It might be closer to it if we said, shall I then tear from Christ his limbs and organs and make them the limbs and organs of a prostitute? That's what sexual immorality is. It is tearing from Christ that which has been made part of him and uniting it to somebody else. That's why Paul says, never, in our translation, in the Greek, it's the emphatic, absolutely, never, 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 no. And he takes it another step further in verses 16 and 17. Not only are our bodies parts of Christ, but we're one spirit with Christ. Now, I know you're thinking spirit and body sound different to me. He's still arguing the language of the body, but you have to follow his reasoning to work out why we're now talking about the spirit. So verse 16, Paul goes back to God's teaching in Genesis 2. When God created Adam and Eve and brought them together, Adam rejoiced to say, this, referring to Eve, is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That idea of one flesh. And and God replied, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. God designed sexual intimacy within the marriage relationship 
to unite husband and wife in the deepest relationship any people can ever know. And yes, within that beautiful union, children often come. But that's not the only thing that one flesh union is all about. God brings together a husband and a wife to know a depth and a strengthening and a deepening and a forging of a union with every part of their life. So there is nothing about them that is distinct from the other in that sense. Everything is shared. Everything becomes one. And that completely changes the answer to that final question. Does it really matter what you do with your body anyway? You see, for the Corinthians and so many in our culture today, the answer is no, it doesn't matter. Well, it's the only thing that matters until it's happened, and then you're supposed to forget it because it doesn't really matter. But Paul turns all of that on his head and says there is absolutely no way you can separate the union from the relationship. That's what's being described here. This this sexual intimacy is to bind together every aspect of a husband and a wife to them such that every part of their relationship is deeper and richer and more committed and more transparent as a consequence of what they enjoy within the married relationship. All of that helps us understand Paul's final argument. Verse 16, our body is so important because when we have sex with someone, we become a one flesh union with them. But to be united to Christ, to be united with him as a member of his body is more than being united with him physically. Look at verse 17. It's to be united with him in his spirit. And there is no deeper union than that. You look at verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Is John Calvin trying to explain just how precious this is. The union of Christ with us is closer than that of a husband and wife. Meaning, dear friend, if I can just pause there in the quote, if you are not yet married but you're a Christian, you know the sweetest union anyone can ever know. And if the Lord does not intend for you to be married, you do not suffer in your relationship with Christ for the lack of it. You have to see how precious this union with Christ is. For if a man who is joined to a wife in marriage ought not to have union with a prostitute. It is far more serious in the case of believers who are not one flesh with Christ, but one spirit. So do you get the stages of Paul's argument? Your body's not your own. Your body has a purpose. The purpose is to bring God glory. And one of the ways you do that is by enjoying the intimacy of that sexual relationship only within marriage. Why? Because The union of a husband and wife isn't just a casual sex, we'll forget about it tomorrow. It's 
The forging of a relationship together that will strengthen and deepen and build every aspect of your lives together to make you one flesh. But what's better than the one flesh union? It is if you're in Christ, you are in his spirit. That's body theology. And all of that helps us see how precious your body is. Helps you see how beautiful sexual intimacy is. And helps you see why sex must only be enjoyed within the marriage covenant. Which means, thirdly and more briefly, we must flee all sexual immorality. It's verses 18 to 20. And we as Christians only have to hear the word flee. And so many of us have got that image of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in our head, haven't we? That idea of as soon as you are faced with that temptation, just drop it and run. Just, just flee. The, the verb's in the present imperative, meaning you're going to have to make it a habit to keep fleeing. Because the temptation's not going to go anywhere. The whole of our lives, we're going to be faced with different temptations towards sexual immorality. And the imperative here is to keep on fleeing. Because arousal is too powerful to flirt with. That's what Paul is saying here. And he goes on to explain why in a way that goes against the grain to how so many Christians think today. We rightly understand that all sin is serious. And that means every single sin needs to be paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ taking it upon himself and by us repenting and confessing of our sin and trusting his sacrifice. We're all still on the same page. But sometimes when we ourselves struggle with sexual sin or we're speaking to somebody else who has fallen in sexual sin, Sometimes we go a step further and we say all sin is the same. Now we might say that for all sorts of reasons. In part, perhaps we're thinking because the solution is the same. <laughs> that all sin can be forgiven as we bring it to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and confession. But what we mean is and perhaps partly because of empathy. We want to come alongside people or we want to speak to our own souls. And part of what we're saying is your sexual sin is the same as coveting or greed or lying. If we get there, we've strayed from what the Bible teaches. And that's what Paul makes really clear in verse 18. Sexual sin is especially serious. Verse 18, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What Paul is saying is that in some way, Sexual sin is worse. 
Now, the tricky part is trying to be clear about how it's worse. But that much is really clear from the text, isn't it? That sexual sin is worse. How is it worse? Well, some Christians will say it's worse because of the devastation that sexual sin causes in all of our relationships. And it absolutely does cause devastation in relationships. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. The reason it's worse in the way that it's against our own body is rooted in the context of Genesis 2. That's why this is quoted here. Other sins will damage your body as well. Drunkenness damages your body. Gluttony damages your body. But none of those other sins, by their nature, are going to create a one flesh union and ruin the one flesh union that God has given you. One writer puts it this way, sexual sin is uniquely body joining and uniquely body defiling. But we can't stop there because that's not all that's at stake. It's not only that sexual sin is is rupturing this union that exists between a husband and a wife and will cause all of the devastation that any kind of sexual immorality will have. Because sex itself is a picture of something even more precious. In the union and the intimacy of the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, there is a picture of something greater. It is not only a gift to strengthen every aspect of the marriage covenant. It is a vision, a picture of part of God's character. It is a vision of the faithfulness of a God who will never, ever change. It is pointing us towards a God whose love and compassion and care and understanding and our ability to be completely transparent with him knows no bounds. That's why there are so many references in the New Testament to us being married as God's people to him. To see something of how the human marriage relationship is a foretaste of the love and the character of God himself. So now think about how serious sexual immorality is. Not only are you in danger of cheating on your husband or wife, or cheating with somebody else's husband or wife, and all of the implications that will be the fallout for all of your families, for the church family, for everybody else, all of those things are horrid and awful. Please don't go there. But the beauty that transcends your marriage is that it is a picture of all that is perfect of God. 
who himself is revealing something of his character in the way that the relationship of a marriage is strengthened and built and encouraged through sex. And that gets us to Paul's final argument, verses 19 and 20. We belong to God who gave his own son for us. Which really is Paul circling back at the beginning of this passage. In in verse 12, he's got this slogan from the Corinthians reminding them that they thought that they owned their own body. And Paul's responded to them in that. He's showing them, no, don't be mastered by anything. Not only that, you need to see the importance of the body. You need to see how serious sexual immorality is. And by the time he gets to his conclusion in verse 19, he reveals to them the foundation for everything that he's been saying. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. And that's not something our secular world can tolerate. The idea of belonging to anybody else is is anathema if you're living in a world of self-expression and individual rights. And we get that this passage isn't going to make sense to a lot of our non-Christian friends. But I think we can wrestle with what this passage really means as Christians too. You see, for too many Christians, we've shrunk the gospel to an irreducible minimum. We've said that what it means to be a Christian is to come to know that Jesus Christ has forgiven us for our sins at the point that we become a Christian. And we're genuinely thankful that he has. And we are so thankful that he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. But functionally, what does that freedom look like? Have you been saved from bondage to sin to now be an independent self serving, free agent, spiritually speaking. Because that's not what Paul explains to us. He tells us we have been bought from that by one who now owns us. And he's really clear about that in chapter 7. We're going to get there in a few weeks. If you flick over to chapter 7 and look down at verse 22, he's writing to Christians, some of whom were saved when they were slaves, Some of them were saved when they were free people. What does he say in verse 22? For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. Do you see how both belong to the Lord? You may well have been indentured as a servant, as a slave at the point that you became a Christian. But when you become a Christian, you don't suddenly become a free person. You are the Lord's freed person. You belong to him. And if you weren't a slave, now you are Christ's slave. Meaning every part of you at the point that you become a Christian belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we We hear the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. We're going to read the first section in just a minute. We hear them, and our response so often is, oh, thank you, Lord, that I am saved in every possible respect. But do you hear the other side to it too? That every single part of you, me, belongs to him. Heidelberg, question one. 
Our only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Free not to do just what the old James might want to do, but verse 20, free to honor God with your bodies. Who owns your body? How do you decide what to do with it? And does it really matter? Christian, the God who sent his son to die upon the cross owns your body. How do you decide to do it? What would how do you decide what to do with it? By looking at his purpose for your body, which is to bring him glory. Does it really matter? Yes. It really, really matters. Now, as we come to the supper, we are not only reminded of the great cost of our salvation we are also reminded of the promise of grace and forgiveness to people who have sinned. That's what this supper is for. This is not for the sexually perfect. This supper is for those who know they're sexually imperfect and imperfect in every other way. But we have found forgiveness by confessing our sin and knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ has taken all of the punishment for our sin. So if you're here this evening and you know that there is something in your heart that has not yet been confessed, do not hide it. And don't think that this has now become a barrier that stops you from taking the grace that you need. Confess it to the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And do so knowing his promise that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. That is the power of the blood.